Hey, good morning. It's good to see you today. Happy Father's Day. I'm grateful to be with you guys uh, this morning. My name's Eric, one of the pastors here. Last week, we, we took a break from Luke and Pastor Guy, who's our founding pastor, uh, mentor of mine, um, and many shared from the scriptures in his heart. And there was an amazing moment that happened right over here last, last week. I was chatting with Guy in between the 9 and 11 a.m. service, and my oldest uh, son, Judah, walks in the room, uh, and he walks straight up to Guy, and he goes, thank you, Pastor Guy. And I was like, wow, what a... I felt like proud as a father in that moment, like I'd done something right. And then, and then and my wife walks up shortly after that and she walks up and she looks like emotional and like a little flustered. And, and I was like, are you okay? And it, you know, guys, farewell sermon. So and we love Guy and Maureen as you do as well. And so I knew she'd be feeling emotional. And she goes, she goes, Listen, she's like, I'm driving your kids to church today. I was like, my kids? And she, 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 I'm driving them to church. And I turned around and I looked at them in the car and I said, 13 years ago, Pastor Guy gave your dad a chance. I'm like, a chance? Like, like, like I had some skills. She's like, and so she just had this sort of reprimanding of, of our children on the, way, <laughs> on the way to church, which resulted in my oldest son honoring Pastor Guy. I thought it was my own influence as a father, but it was really just my wife's, so happy Father's Day, right? <laughs> it's, uh, it is an honor to carry sort of the preaching baton this week. Uh, we are really close to the end of Luke, and in a series that has taken years um, for us to complete, we're, we're coming to the end of it. And I was thinking about this last week, Pastor Guy, you talked about um, the mountain, and Jesus is on the, on the mountain praying, and the mountain is a, is a place of transcendent glory, and that's true throughout the entirety of the Gospels, but I think it's even most supremely true today as Jesus is on yet another mountain, but this time it's Mount Calvary, and Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's on his way to this, this moment of, of salvation that is, is, is our hope. Um, and so this morning we're going to read kind of a lengthier passage of scripture. Um, it's, 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 it's a passage I, I simply can't, we don't have time for me to draw out all of the great things that are in it. It's, it's truly inexhaustible. And because of that, I want us to approach it a little bit differently this morning. I, I want to encourage you to, to hear the word of God that I'm about to read, that we'll read together as an act of faith and trust. And not just with our ears, but, but even with our whole bodies. And so, the, again, this will be different, but I want to invite you to stand this morning and even right now. And we will read the story of the crucifixion and receive this word from God himself. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. 
For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that, that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, where they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. This is God's word. And you can be seated. There's a lot, right? So the title of this sermon is The Cross is the Answer. The Cross is the Answer. Now it answers a number of questions. Um, certainly it answers the question is, where is Luke taking us in this story? And it's right here to the cross. 
We remind ourselves of back in, in Luke chapter two, the, the prophecies about Jesus are about a baby who would be born to a virgin, but that that baby would be a savior. And how would he save the cross? In Luke chapter four, Jesus takes this ancient passage from the book of Isaiah about, uh, from Israel's history about how there would be one who would bring liberty to the captives to set those free who'd been in bondage. And Jesus says, that is happening right now in my life, but supremely in his death. Luke 9 is, is where Jesus begins as, as he's begun to kind of assemble these disciples. He begins to talk to them and he tells them that he will one day suffer and die. And later on in that same chapter, in chapter 9, it, it tells us that Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. Well, what's, what's waiting for him at Jerusalem? It's, it's the cross. And that is where the story is going. The cross is the answer. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to put forward a question that I believe every person, every nation, every movement is asking. And it's this question, what can heal our world? What can heal our hearts? Perhaps, perhaps even more so on this weekend where we celebrate and remember Juneteenth and yet, even in the midst of that, we're reminded of the division and pain that still exists in our nation. What can heal our world? Perhaps even on a Father's Day where, you know, for many it's a day of celebrating, but also for many it's a day that exposes disappointment and pain and brokenness and wounds. And we ask this question, what can heal our world? What can heal our hearts? And I'm simply, I've simply come today to tell you that the cross is the answer. And even as I say that, I, I, I appreciate the amens, but I, I, and I also know that, that some of us, that there's sort of this kind of internal like eye roll as you hear that. Because the world is so broken. And the pain that we've experienced personally is so deep and something like the cross as the answer may come across as simplistic. But again, I come today and I hope the spirit and, and, and humbly, I think in the spirit of the Apostle Paul who wrote a letter, one of the first letters that would, in what would become the New Testament to a group of, of, of Jesus followers in a town called Corinth that was experiencing tons of division and brokenness. It's, it's a, a church that had become complicit with the evils of their culture and of their time, a, a church that was bickering and fighting and struggling, painfully making headway. And Paul said to them, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I am here to tell you that the cross is the answer. So how does the cross heal us and how does it heal our world? Again, we have this really long passage today and so what we'll, what we'll kind of focus in on is these four sayings, these four words from Jesus himself. I think it, it's, it's part of the answer for how the cross saves the world. The four words are this, the word of judgment, the word of forgiveness, the word of hope, 
in the word of trust. This is what Jesus brings to us today. The first word is the word of judgment. And it's centered around this question, who can judge? And Luke is getting, all through his gospel, Luke is, he's getting after this theme of judgment. Jesus comes and he comes in the spirit of the prophets of the Old Testament, whose, whose vocation was to call Israel back to God. The prophets would come to, to call the people back to God's heart and his ways and his truth and his word. The, the prophets were calling the people to exemplify the compassion and mercy of God, and especially when they were failing to do so. And the leaders that Jesus is encountering in Israel throughout his life in, in his ministry have failed to do this. And, and what happens is they are rejecting Jesus, but Jesus is telling the leaders all throughout the gospel that they are not just rejecting him, but they are rejecting God himself. And while God is patient and kind and merciful, he is also just. And judgment is actually coming. And that brings us back to the text. And we read this sort of strange account that is unique to Luke's gospel. It comes to us in verse 27. As, as, as Jesus is, is walking on the way to the cross, there's a group of people mourning from him. Listen, listen to what happens here. Verse 27, it says, There followed him a great multitude of the people, and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And we'll stop there. And I just want to pause and say, Jesus again is, is telling these, these women who are, are weeping and lamenting and mourning for him. What he is telling them is that they are in a worse position than he is. The nation is in a worse position than he is because, again, not only are they rejecting him as their king, they are rejecting God as their God. Luke, oftentimes in, in, in his gospel narrative, will, will look ahead to a, a future historical event that we know happened in history in 70 AD. There would be, within Jerusalem, this sort of uprising, which is it's really a failed uh, revolt this violent revolt against Rome that, that would result in great suffering, not just for soldiers, but for, as Jesus says here, men and women and even children. And it's this militaristic uprising that massively fails, and Jesus looks ahead to it, and he says this. He says, you're rejecting me as your king and going your own way, and in doing that, you will be destroyed. Judgment is coming in the rejection of him. But even as he says this, his words are full of compassion. Remember, a few weeks ago, Jesus, he, he's weeping over Jerusalem because he longs for them to, to accept him as king, but instead they reject him. And it brings us to this truth, this reality. You can't talk about the cross and not talk about judgment. The cross is about more than Israel rejecting their king. It's about the world, us rejecting our king. 
And when you look around at the brokenness of, of our world, what, what we see is a world that is in rebellion against its creator. And the cross is God's righteous judgment against sin and death and the devil. And Jesus, in his body and on the cross, is bearing the full brunt of God's judgment, his righteous hatred of evil in all its forms. So in a way, we, we can say that the cross is bad news before it's good news. It is good news, but it's also judgment. And now we've talked about how what we're going to do today is, is consider how the cross speaks to our moment. We live in a world that wants justice and wants judgment. And it longs for that, and rightfully so. And, and we look around in our world, and, and, and there's this question that rises up. Who can judge? Now, unfortunately, our culture answers that question with you know, anyone with a Twitter handle, right? We have deemed ourselves to not only be the judge, but the jury and the executioner of the world and all its evils. And the reason why I believe the various movements of justice throughout our world, the reason I believe that they will fail is because they fail to connect what the cross brings together. And this is how, this is how we'll move together forward in, in, in our story today. The world says judgment and justice, but the cross says judgment and forgiveness. And that is what is unique in our Christian story as we look to the cross, is yes to judgment, yes to fighting against evil, but somehow yes to forgiveness. And that is how Jesus confronts us today from the cross. It's not just with the judgment of God, but the radical forgiveness of God, which is his second word. And it comes to us in verse 32. I want to invite you to look back into the text. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, where there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garment. I want to talk this morning, and much of our time will be spent talking about this theme of forgiveness. Because the cross, is, as we said, it's not just a word about judgment, it's a word about forgiveness. It's not just about justice, but it's about mercy. C.S. Lewis once said, forgiveness is a beautiful word until you have something to forgive. And isn't that true? Our culture and even in our, in our own hearts, when we are confronted with Jesus on the cross forgiving, we, something rises up in us that says, why should we forgive? What good does forgiveness do? Especially in this instance, in, in the death of Jesus where no one is apologizing. No one is repenting. And this sermon would, and even this point particular, this would be just a massive fail to gloss over that fact. Jesus is forgiving people who are not sorry. 
who are not repentant. In October of 2006, a gunman took hostages in a one-room Amish schoolhouse in a town called Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. And he shot 10 children, ages seven to 13, five of whom died, and then he killed himself. Maybe you remember this story. And within hours, members of the Amish community visited both the killer's immediate family and his parents. And each time they expressed sympathy for their loss. The Amish uniformly expressed forgiveness of the murderer and his family. And, and this forgiveness amazed and astonished all those who read about it and heard about it in our culture. And numerous voices called Americans to emulate this, to become more like the Amish who did this. And so over a, a period of years, a group of scholars begin to, to write about it and to think deeply about this, in, this incident. And one of their main conclusions was that our secular culture is not likely to produce people who can handle suffering the way that the Amish did. They concluded that a secular culture cannot and will not produce this kind of grace. We might see examples of forgiveness in our time, but, but our secular culture, it, it can't produce a community of people that live out forgiveness. Alan Jacobs said this. I think we have this quote to put on the screen. He said, when a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it doesn't become less moralistic, but far more so because it retains an inchoate sense of justice, but has no means of offering and receiving forgiveness. He goes on, the great moral crisis of our time is not, as many of my Christ fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. Social media serves crack for moralists. There's no high like the high you get from punishing malfactors. But like every addiction, this one suffers from the inexorable law of diminishing returns. The mania for punishment will therefore get worse before it gets better. Now, where are we going with this? What he's saying is that only the Christian story answers the question of what can heal our world. And it answers that question with judgment and forgiveness. Our, our Christian testimony, the good news of Christianity, is that in Jesus, forgiveness and judgment come together in perfection, and the result is salvation. But it's still true. C.S. Lewis is still right. Forgiveness is a beautiful thing until we have to do it, right? Uh, even, I, I was studying that this week and I, I was thinking of all the sort of objections to forgiveness that, that rise up in us because of the experience of our brokenness in this world. You may be thinking, you know, forgiveness is one of those things we put on victims while perpetrators go free. Or perhaps that forgiveness is something used by um, maybe even, even pastors to, to tell women to stay in an abusive relationship. 
there's this cry within us that says forgiveness doesn't actually work. And again, I would say many of the justice movements of our moment are saying forgiveness, is, it's, it doesn't work. But here we are again. We are confronted with the reality that Jesus right now on the cross is pleading with God, his father, to forgive his enemies. So this teaches us something that's deeply true about the practice of forgiveness. And it comes from Jesus. It's this reality that because, because when we do evil against one another, our sin is first and foremost against God. It's against the God whose image every human being bears. And so Jesus teaches us that forgiveness is first directed to God, Father, these, these executioners, they're sinning against you. And Jesus knows that. And he knows that only God can judge. The Greek, used, the Greek word used by Luke here for forgiveness that, that comes at us in the passage is Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them. The, that word means to release. That's what forgiveness means. It means to release. So when we forgive, we are releasing our right to retaliate. We are releasing what Alan Jacobs calls the great sin of our age, which is vindictiveness. We are releasing that. We're releasing people who have hurt us to God himself. And this is the way of Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we, we, we read from Peter, the same Peter who walked with Jesus and perhaps knew him better than anyone in human history. 1 Peter in, in chapter 2, he says this about Jesus on the cross. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that is forgiveness. Jesus is releasing those who have hurt him and, and committed evil against him. He's releasing them to God because he trusts God. Timothy Keller, who wrote an article where a lot of this, um, a lot of this talk about forgiveness has come from, a lot of this material, he, he said this, and this is profound. He said, forgiveness is granted before it is experienced. Forgiveness is granted before it is experienced. Now, what does that look like? What, what, is, what are examples of what that looks like? We, we see Jesus, but in our world, what, what does it look like to hold forgiveness and even justice at the same time? We would do right on a, on a week like this to consider uh, Frederick Douglass, who lived most of his life in slavery, just brutal enslavement. And he was able, if you know anything about him, he was able to escape and, and he worked tirelessly in the abolitionist movement as a speaker and a, and a writer, had a profound impact on our country. And near the end of his life, he, um, we we're told, he, he visited a man named Thomas Ald. And this was the man who had owned him for a significant portion of his life. Douglas had even written about him He'd written about his experience of, of being a slave under Ald's kind of 
in his plantation and, and, and Douglas wrote about the evils of it. He used, he talked about the evils that have been committed against him as a way to bring to light the horrors of slavery in our country. Douglas had written about them, but at the end of Ald's life, Douglas himself came to visit him. He came to him to, to, to comfort him and encourage him at the end of his life. Because the truth is, is that Douglas, long before this moment, had, had forgiven Ald. And it was at his bedside that they wept together and they talked and they reminisced. And Douglas said these words to him. He said, I love you, but I hate slavery. What Jesus is doing on the cross, he's not just forgiving those who are executing him. He's forgiving us. And long before we repent, long before we ask for forgiveness, Jesus is granting it. He grants us forgiveness before we experience it. It's as if Jesus is on the cross and he looks at us and he says, I love you, but I hate sin. Judgment and mercy. They come together on the cross. And we know that this has a profound effect because what we get right next in our story is it's a case study. Because Jesus is not simply muttering these things under his breath. There are actually two people within earshot of him that are experiencing this reality. Remember the criminal on his right and the criminal on his left. They are listening in. And what they do is they bring us into the third word from Jesus. The first word is judgment. The second word is forgiveness. But the third word is hope. We find their story here in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And, we, and listen to this. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise so here's the, the contrast. One joins in with the executioners and he says, save yourself. And it's not really like save yourself. Basically what the one criminal is saying is avenge yourself and us. And then there's another criminal who has reckoned with the reality of what's happening. And so they have this strange kind of conversation back and forth, and then Jesus is hanging in, in the middle of them, and, and the one says to the other, he says, don't you understand that we're getting what we deserve right now? We actually deserve to be here. It's not unjust for us to be hanging on this cross, but it is unjust that Jesus would hang here. And so the one criminal has come to see 
justice and forgiveness coming together in Jesus. And he responds in faith. In this amazing, what is precious moment of faith, the one looks to him and he says, Jesus, remember me. Here's an interesting thing to think about, at least interesting to me. The, the, the criminal's response by calling Jesus by his name, it's one of the only times in the whole gospel where somebody refers to Jesus as Jesus. So, so not like the sort of authority title of, of rabbi or teacher, this sort of like prominent title that he has, or maybe not a theological title like Lord. This criminal doesn't know hardly anything about Jesus. And so he just calls out his name. It's Jesus, I don't know. I don't know much or anything about you, but I know you're the king. And he has witnessed justice and forgiveness come together in Christ and he responds in faith and hope. And so he asks Jesus for something like down the road, right? He's, he, he says, Jesus, you're the king down the road at some other point in future, in, in, in history, down, down the road, would you remember me? He doesn't even know how, what to ask for, but Jesus gives us more than we could even ask for. And Jesus says, actually, today, right now, you're going where I'm going. Jesus says, I'm going to the Father. And heaven is gonna become your reality right now. Not in the future, but even in this moment. It's hope. The cross speaks a word of hope. Far beyond the sufferings of this life, far beyond our, our war against sin in, in our own selves in this life, the, the cross gives us a hope and a future. And here we see one who responds to it right now. And that brings us to the fourth and final word from Jesus this morning. And that word is trust. Jesus is, is at the end of his life. He's answering the question that, that the whole world is asked. We're, 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 saying, we're asking this question, what can heal our world? We're asking another question often is who can we trust? I don't even have to give you the statistics of the decline of trust in Western culture. Trust in the government declining. Trust in the media declining. Trust in particular of people who think differently than us declining. And Jesus offers a word of trust. Right here, it comes to us in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit. And that word is entrust. Into your hands I entrust my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The final word from the cross, the word that heals our world, is the word of trust. 
So what's happening right now is darkness is covering the whole land. And the temple, the, the curtain in the temple is torn into now. Again, this brings us back to what we said earlier. Darkness covering the land is, is, is many scholars believe, as a sign of God's judgment that is being enacted right now on the cross in darkness. And the, the curtain in the temple that is torn was, was most argued was the curtain that separated um, the holy place from the most holy place. And the most holy place was where the high priest would go on the day of atonement to make atonement or forgiveness for sins. And Jesus is telling us that even in the darkness, God is making a way. In Jesus' darkest hour, he entrusts himself to his Father. He answers the question, who can we trust? We can trust our Father. And I'll simply say this, if Jesus can trust his Father in that moment, couldn't we trust our Father in our moment, right here, right now. Entrusting our lives, our future, to the God who is always at work. What can heal our world and our hearts? It's the cross. The cross of Christ can heal. Jesus tells us that reality through these four words of judgment, but not judgment by itself, judgment and forgiveness and hope, but not just a, a hope in the future, but a hope right now expressed in trust. Jesus gives us all this, and certainly more on the cross. And then he dies. And our story goes on to say, lest we wondered if that death was real, Luke names names. Joseph from Arimathea comes and gets the body of Jesus and, and buries it. And we're, and we're left sort of with just that reality of the death of Jesus to sit with, to consider, to process, and, and let its truth and ways work deep into our hearts, even as we hope for and long for resurrection, we, we realize that the cross is the actual way. The cross is the answer. So here's a moment, here's real talk. In the last year in my life personally, the, the greatest sin that I've had to battle with is bitterness. Anyone with me on that? Bitterness. And whether it's watching people walk away from Jesus watching people walk away from church, watching people walk away from our community, relationships that I thought were stronger, proving to be far more fragile than I hoped. It's the easiest thing for me, is bitterness. Constantly calling my mentor or my friend Chris, saying, I'm, I'm, it's rising up within me. This bitterness, disillusionment, disappointment. It's like Pastor Guy was saying last week, the hardest thing is the people that are in the boat with you. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, and I had a moment, a really profound moment this last week. I was preparing for this sermon 
And I was, I, that was just, stir, bitterness was just stirring up in me. And I was like, man, I need, I need to get a hold of this. Like, I need to get healed from this. Super hard. And I felt God's spirit spoke to mine in that moment. And what did he tell me? The cross. The cross is the answer. So what can heal our world? What can heal our hearts? Somehow, in the wisdom of God, which is foolishness to us, the answer to that is Jesus on a cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. We thank you for the cross today. We're told throughout the life of Jesus to take up our own cross. Most of the time, we don't really know what that looks like. Each one of us, we don't know what that looks like. But I pray, God, that increasingly today, even as we worship and come to the table, that we would approach you in faith, trusting that somehow your cross is the answer. Somehow on the cross you have met us in our pain, met us in our sin, met us in our brokenness regarding the evils that we have done and that have been done to us. You meet us there. You don't leave us alone. You meet us in that pain. We pray, Lord, that as a community of Christ, that we would bear witness to that reality in our world. That is what we have to offer. Like Paul, not, not, not the wisdom of this world, not an answer to all the world's problems, but our savior on a cross. Help us to see him today in our minds and in our hearts, in our family, in our community, we pray. Amen.